Hi, Victoria. Hi, Kirko. Come up to the stage. Nice to see you. Hello. Nice to see you both, Katarina, Kirko. Yep. How are you guys doing? Gals. Good, good. <laughs> How are you? Pretty good, man. Uh, about to run all these last-minute errands before this goddamn hurricane from Chicago, so we're not used to this type of weather. They said it's supposed to be like 7 to 10 inches of rain. I say rain? <laughs> I'm used to snow, but rain? <laughs> I don't even know how you gauge that. Yeah, that's scary. I hope you guys stay safe. So, I, I don't know. We, I went through like minor hurricanes, but nothing really bad happened where I live. Like in other parts of Brooklyn, there was like stuff going on. But yeah, gladly I live a little bit up the hill, so usually we're fine. But yeah, I hope everything will be fine. <laughs> We had really bad blizzards when we lived on Cape Cod on Massachusetts, which is an island. So there I was kind of scared. It was really strong wind and very cold. Oh, hi, Orly. Um, how are you? We are talking about hurricanes. Um, how are you today? Uh, to unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right hand. There's a little microphone symbol uh, if you want to speak. Can you hear us, Orly? Orly, hello. You might find success if you leave and come back. I can hear you. Yippee. Hi, everyone. Great. Um, we'll start in around six minutes, so we still have time to hang out. Um, yeah. Kiko said he's preparing for the hurricanes. And I was talking about really bad blizzards I was in uh, on Cape Cod. It was really horrible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I hope everyone stays safe. I jumped in. I just was listening when when you said that about the blizzards, and and I thought that you were talking about lizards, and so I was really interested to hear what kind of dangerous lizards I'd never heard of that are living on Cape Cod. Um, yeah. yeah, it was blizzards. So we moved back from Portugal in like the worst year of Massachusetts having like the horrible blizzards. We couldn't see our backyard, I think until early May, like Boston didn't know what to do with the snow and um, the ocean froze even on Martha's Vineyard. I don't know, it was really, there was, uh, boats couldn't reach people. So I caught, uh, classmates of my son they lived on these little islands and they couldn't get to school and they were starting to run out of food it was like very dramatic winter <laughs>
That sounds kind of picturesque, though. Were you out photographing? Back then, I didn't do the photo photography yet, but it was like, you know, we there were people playing. So we had the Marine Biological Laboratory has a saltwater pond, so kind of to put their boats and stuff. And the saltwater was completely frozen, so people were playing ice hockey. But you also had then frozen ducks in the morning, <laughs> and. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it was kind of very special. <laughs> it, was, you know, it looked like Winter Wonderland somehow, but it was also kind of dramatic because people were out of power for like weeks. Because then the next one came and the next one kind of didn't stop for like three months. <laughs> so, anyhow. So I'm reading 22 feet of snow in the room chat. How long does it take to leave a home if you're under 22 feet of snow? Well, we were not allowed outside for almost a week to drive. So we really had to pack up food and stuff because it was not just a lot of snow. It was storm, real storm. And... We gladly bought, I never, like, we arrived, it was this horrible winter, so my husband said, okay, let's buy a, a tr pickup truck, and then we sold it when we moved away. <laughs> so that was very, com very good, very fortunate decision, because it was the only way to get somewhere. And to I'm get think <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, to get also to the Institute. I couldn't get away like without that. Well, I was thinking because also you needed to load up your truck for all the food that you would need and supplies during that 22 feet of snow that's on you. Yeah, in the summer, so my son, he, you know, he was a teenager, so he, he bought a little boat that he could um, pull with the truck. So. Uh, friends of him from Portugal came so they could go around these little islands around Falmouth. Um, so that was fun also. So, yeah, if you're on Cape Cod, if you have a boat and horrible winter, <laughs> a pickup truck. Hopefully they are electric ones soon. So. I, I pre-ordered the Cybertruck. But anyway. <laughs> I wish it was prettier. The design is just is so lacking and, and harsh and unbeautiful. I really but congratulations. Like it. I should not I'm sorry, I apologize. I should not apologize. I, I should not criticize your Oh your no I it'd be great. It's totally sorry. fine, but I actually like the design. Like I like the rough like it looks like cyberpunk type of I don't know, I kinda like it as it should be i think we can we can slowly start only thank you for being so patient and uh waiting here um and listening to our conversation i hope it wasn't too you know <laughs> too annoying. so um welcome everyone to the science society and of course a special welcome to our guest speaker here today 
and before we start let me give you a short introduction so you get to know um, our guest speaker a little bit and um, and then we'll go from there um, so Dr. Orly Lazarov she's a professor of neuroscience in the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and uh, she was um, a graduate student at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel and she was part of the um, research group of Professor Michael Schwartz uh, and there she studied the crosstalk between the immune system and the central nervous system in relation to nerve trauma and she won the Feinberg Graduate School Fellowship of Distinction for her outstanding achievement in studies and research at, and the Feinberg Graduate School Award for her distinguished PhD um, as a distinguished PhD student. And then she um, joined the group of Professor Sangram um, Sisodia at the University of Chicago. Uh, where Dr. Lazarov studied the um, multiple aspects of Alzheimer's disease and neuropathology. And uh, she, pioneer, she was pioneering studies showing that in addition to genetics, environmental factors play a really major role in the formation of Alzheimer's disease. And then Dr. Lazarov joined the Department of Anatomy and cell biology at the University of Illinois in 2005, where she has now her own research group and studies neurogenesis and plasticity in aging and in Alzheimer's disease. And um, yeah, usually we start with a short interview. Uh, so Victoria, the stage is yours for the interview questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katarina. Orly, that was such an interesting CV to listen to, and I can't wait to hear your talk. And Science Society is so happy to welcome you here. Um, so to begin, Science Society is all about people exploring knowledge together. So my questions will allow us to learn a little bit about you, aside from your work. And what I would like to ask you is, can you Tell us a little bit about a time that you might have noticed that you had an affinity towards science at any time in your life, maybe when it, when it first showed up for you, maybe as a child in a class or, or a relative, you know, shared something with you that you found interesting and you felt like science is my thing. So that's my question. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me um, to um, join this club and give a talk. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here. Um, and um, it's it's hard to say when the whole thing started. Um, I guess during high school, I was very intrigued by, um, you know, um, animal behavior, and I wanted to do some field research in Africa. So I decided to um, study life sciences, and um, then I realized that um, I like uh, molecular biology and genetics better than um, animal physiology, and uh, the rest is just history. So I guess that was probably a, you know, a 
turning point. Thank you. It's to realize what can happen when exposure to topics or um, you know aspects of life that that we aren't familiar with and how that opens up our creativity so we can find our path and and so speaking of path can you can you tell us maybe give some a brief overview of your journey from that point when you became more interested in molecular bio and genetics to your work that you're about to share with us today? Yeah, I think it was um, a real evolution of, um, of interests. Um, I guess, um, I think, you know, it is really interesting because um, science is all about questioning, right? It's all about um, um, not taking things for granted, but um, always questioning the dogma. And um, I guess it was just an evolution of studies that I've read and uh, was very intrigued by. Um, the, the brain, I think, has always been a, a major interest of mine and in how to um, develop therapy for brain disorders um, has always been a, a major challenge. And I thought that this is something that I would like to um, learn more about. And um, during my graduate years, I was fascinated by um, different aspects of um, brain plasticity and regeneration. And um, when I started um, learning more and more about Alzheimer's disease, I realized that, um, and I, I will talk about it um, a little bit, I realized that there are aspects that um, are unexplored um, in the in the field, and I was very intrigued by that. Um, and one of them is is hippocampal neurogenesis that I'm going to talk about today. Um, so about 20 years ago, when I started um, um, researching, I realized that um, there's very little that is known, but actually I could see the connection between hippocampal neurogenesis and Alzheimer's disease very much early on. And um, the rest is history. Um, I'll, I'll definitely talk about how that evolved into um, the work that we are um, presenting today. So fascinating. Thank you. I have one more question, if I may. Um, how, if, if you know, how how is it that you felt comfortable questioning the dogma, as you mentioned, when other people may not feel so comfortable? How do you, what do you think it was that gave you that courage to trust yourself and your own, your own questioning? I, you know, I, I do believe that we have to live our lives um, questioning everything every day, right? So, um, it's just, I guess, the acknowledgement that research tools are um, as wonderful as they are. They're also limited. And if we acknowledge the limitation of our own tools and realize that we can show only what our tools allow us to show, um, then you, um, 
you come to the realization that as tools develop and we have more opportunities to um, reevaluate um, previous data, we should do that. And um, I guess it's not it's not me being um, you know <laughs> braver than others. It's just um, you know something that I guess um, I've been you know trying to implement in my own my my personal life and um it you know uh, obviously translated into my research as well <laughs> thank you i appreciate i appreciate your answers they're they're fascinating because also aside from your research we never know what what sort of example or lesson we'll pick up from from hearing someone's journey and so it's it's always important to to share and 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 learn so at this point you're welcome to go into your talk and if you'd like to have the q a following your discussion then that's great and if you prefer to have questions from the audience and people on stage to drive the shape of your discussion then that's fine too we the moderators are here to help make that happen and sometimes people will put questions that they have for you in the room chat and we can let you know about that as well so all you really need to be concerned with is delivering your talk and and um and enjoying the time here so did you have any other questions beyond that um, no, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, I am happy to take any questions during the talk. I just need someone to speak up uh, because I may not realize that uh, there is a question somewhere. So if anyone has a question, please speak up. Um, otherwise, I'm happy to take any questions um, at the end of the talk as well. So whatever works for, for you guys. Fantastic. Okay, we will moderate the questions and we'll be sure to let you know. And um, Katarina has got your PDF right there. So the mic is yours. Thank you so much, Orly. Okay, thank you. All right. So um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, or almost good evening. Depends on uh, where you are in the world, <laughs> I guess. Um, and thank you again for the invitation to speak today. Um, I would like to um, talk about our research um, in the last um, several years. Um, you know, we had um, very interesting observations concerning um, the role of hippocampal neurogenesis in Alzheimer's disease. So let's um, start talking about um, Alzheimer's disease first. Uh, we'll go to the next slide. And um, I cannot see the slide, so I'm not sure what slide uh, you're pointing at. But um, um, if we assume that um, this first slide with my name on it um, is the first slide, uh, then the next slide, the second slide, um, will show um, um, some information about Alzheimer's disease. So we're talking about a, a neurodegenerative disorder that um, is characterized by progressive memory loss and um, cognitive decline, eventually leading to dementia, which is the inability to perform daily life um, independently. Uh, in some cases, we also see altered behavior such as paranoia um, and other uh, behavioral 
um, abnormalities. The interesting um, phenomenon um, of uh, neuronal vulnerability um, is a, a very important part of um, Alzheimer's pathology. Um, an area that is called the hippocampal formation, which includes the adrenal cortex and the hippocampus, um, exhibits high vulnerability um, of neurons. And in fact, um, neurons in the adrenal cortex die first in the disease in about mild form, mild form of Alzheimer's disease, 60% of layer two of the adrenal cortex die. And uh, in a more advanced stage, almost 90% of this layer is lost. And I'll talk a lot about the hippocampal formation. This is a, an area that is extremely important for memory formation. And we'll discuss that extensively today. In addition to neuronal vulnerability, the um, two pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease are amyloid deposition, uh, which are A-beta um, aggregates that um, are a cleavage product of um, amyloid precursor protein um, and neurofibrillary tangles, which are um, intracellular um, aggregates of hyperphosphorylated tau. There are other um, pathological hallmarks such as um, inflammation and gliosis and um, others. As you can see in the picture, um, you can see um, Dr. Alzheimer, um, who um, is the uh, psychiatrist who um, discovered Alzheimer's disease. And um, next to his picture is the picture of his uh, patient, uh, Augusta D. Um, who um, had a, a genetic form of Alzheimer's disease. So what is the difference between genetic and non-genetic um, Alzheimer's disease? The genetic is a familial form. It is an autosomal dominant form that um, is caused by mutations in either amyloid precursor protein or APP, presenolin 1 and presenolin 2. However, the vast majority um, of Alzheimer's cases um, do not carry these mutations um, and they're um, caused by an probably an unknown uh, would be fair to say factor or factors. Um, there are risk factors for the um, sporadic late onset form of Alzheimer's disease such as age, um, APOE4, um, aging, of course, trend two and other factors that um, you may be familiar with, such as um, type two diabetes, vascular disease, cardiovascular disease are all risk factors for this disorder. So what do, we, what do we know about Alzheimer's disease um, so far? Uh, we know that it's a very slow progressive um, progressing disorder um, that we presume starts decades before um, the clinical diagnosis, so before um, memory loss becomes apparent, we know that aging is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So um, hypothetically, if we're able to um, prevent aging or delay aging, um, it would um, reduce the number of cases of Alzheimer's disease. We know that um, so far, the um, association between um, level of pathological hallmarks, uh, namely neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid deposition, and um, the cognitive diagnosis, which means um, 
level of impairments of uh, memory loss um, is not entirely clear. Uh, we do know that there are people with extraordinary um, memory um, called superagers that um, in their brains um, we could find neurofibrillary tangles and um, amyloid plaques. And so this association between um, the pathological hallmarks and Alzheimer's disease um, diagnosis is not fully understood. It is definitely possible, and I would think that uh, some of the people in the field believe that what we are um, facing today is actually um, the realization that um, Alzheimer's disease is in fact an umbrella of subphenotypes and pathways. Um, different individuals could have different risk factors that would trigger um, molecular pathways that are that may be different, uh, but would lead to the same end result, which is memory loss. But ultimately, if we're thinking about Alzheimer's disease, um, to date, the cause um, of memory deficits um, is not fully understood. We don't really understand fully understand the mechanism that causes um, the dysfunction of memory circuits um, in Alzheimer's disease. So the memory circuit, um, as I mentioned before, um, is composed of um, the um, vulnerable neurons um, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, we're looking here, and this is, uh, we're in slide four right now. I'm sorry for, forgot to mention that I'm moving a slide. Um, so this is slide four right now. We're looking at um, the hippocampal formation. And you can see that um, neurons in layer two of the entorhinal cortex project into um, the dentate gyrus of the um, hippocampus. An interesting phenomenon um, and very unique of the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus is the existence of um, the neurogenic niche, which is a niche of neural stem cells that um, exists in the hippocampus, in the dentate gyrus specifically throughout life. And from neural stem cells, which are multipotent, um, new neurons are being generated and incorporate in the granular cell layer of the dentate gyrus. They become granular neurons. And um, as you can imagine, um, since layer two of the entorhinal cortex projects into the dentate gyrus, new neurons um, play um, an equal role um, in the granular cell layer as um, those uh, more mature neurons um, in terms of um, future role in the dentate gyrus. Now, um, this is a very unique phenomenon because um, in other areas or the vast majority of the brain, um, there are no um, stem cells. So neural stem cells is a, a very unique phenomenon um, that is actually in the rodent brain we find in the um, hippocampus, in the dentate gyrus, in the granular cell layer of the dentate gyrus, and in the olfactory bulb or in the subventricular zone um, that is um, um, connected to the olfactory bulb in that sense because um, neural stem cells that uh, differentiate into mature neurons migrate into the olfactory bulb. So indeed, only 
um, so far, um, two areas that are confirmed to have neural stem cells that differentiate into mature neurons and the hippocampus is one of them. Now, the big question is, um, what is what is the role of um, uh, new neurons uh, in the dentate gyrus and why in the dentate gyrus specifically, an area that is so important for learning and memory? So here uh, in the next slide, you can appreciate that these are neural stem cells that have the capability to differentiate into all three types of brain cells, um, either oligodendrocytes and astrocytes or into mature neurons. This process of neurogenesis takes about four to six weeks um, during this uh, process. Um, neurons or the new neurons um, exit the cell cycle as progenitors and mature into uh, new neurons. Um, they're expressing uh, different uh, neurogenic and neuronal uh, markers, and they are thought to play a major role um, in hippocampal function, such as um, pattern separation, associative memory, spatial navigation, um, and so forth. So to summarize this, we have here a phenomenon where new neurons are being incorporated in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus throughout life and play a role in hippocampus-dependent learning and memory. Now, a big question is, does hippocampal neurogenesis exist in the human brain? because if we are um, thinking about translating any potential findings into a, a therapy um, of um, the human disease, the human brain, we would be very interested to know, and I'm moving to the next slide, whether hippocampal neurogenesis does exist in the human brain. And indeed, um, several studies have shown um, from uh, Fred, Gage, um, Fred Gage's lab and from um, others that indeed um, in the human brain, um, neural progenitor cells become mature neurons in the dentate gyrus. And um, very intriguing studies from um, 2013 have shown that um, approximately one third of the neurons in the dentate gyrus are um, turnover, and that indeed every day in the human brain, about 700 new neurons are being added to the hippocampus. So I would encourage you to multiply 700 new neurons times 365 days times 80 years, and you will get um, a lot of neurons, a lot of new neurons that are being added um, to the dentate gyrus um, throughout life. However, um, this has been um, really questioned um, very seriously, but by um, several um, groups and um, who uh, reported that they could have not found any new neurons in the um, aging human uh, brain. And so to examine this possibility and to really um, assess for ourselves whether hippocampal neurogenesis does exist in the human brain or not, and what happens in Alzheimer's disease, and I'm moving to the next slide, uh, we um, uh, obtained uh, postmortem brain sections from 
um, the Alzheimer's Disease and um, Research Center at Rush University. And those postmortem brain sections um, were um, of um, three major groups. One group was uh, normal aging, so individuals that had intact memory when they passed away. Um, the other group was um, of individuals that um, when they passed away had a, a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairments, which is the uh, precursor, could be a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. And then the third group was of patients that um, when they passed away, they had a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And we um, looked, um, examined the brains, and I'm moving to the next slide, um, and, um, and asked whether, first of all, whether we're able to detect neurons um, in the human brain, and second, whether um, we're able to find any differences between normal aging and Alzheimer's disease. And indeed, as you can see here in the graph on the upper left, we observed that in the normal aging group, which is um, um, designated here as NCI, no cognitive impairments, uh, we observed, and you can look at the pictures underneath, and you can see that this uh, confocal imaging of new neurons, uh, DCX is double cordon, um, in short for um, double cordon, which is a, a a proxy of neurons. Uh, we observed that um, in the normal aging, there are um, definitely um, uh, there's definitely a substantial amount of neurons that are being generated in the dentate gyrus um, of the hippocampus. Interestingly, we observed that in NCI and AD brains, um, the number of neurons was significantly lower. Um, we further looked um, to see whether we we're able to detect any pathology in those neurons specifically. And indeed, it was really interesting to find that, and this is in the next slide, you can see that um, in double cordon positive, DCX positive um, neurons, um, in the Alzheimer's brain, we could detect uh, more hyperphosphorylated tau. Um, and this is something that, um, I think is uh, pretty novel because I don't think that um, anyone has described that uh, before. And um, I think, you know, many people um, in the uh, field would probably argue that um, uh, impairments in neurogenesis may be a result and not a cause. And um, this is, you know, one of the um, earlier times that, um, you know, that, that would be an appropriate time to say, well, maybe not. Maybe this is something to um, rethink. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, when we looked at the amount of um, neurons as a function of cognitive diagnosis, we indeed realized that um, having more neurons reduced the likelihood of cognitive deficit diagnosis, suggesting that, and this is in the next slide, suggesting that the more neurons one has, the likelihood of having a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is reduced. So in other words, um, the number of neurons um, in one's brain correlates with the level of diagnosis um, 
of um, a, a positive diagnosis. So that was very exciting. Um, and this is all in the human brain. And so we went back to understand um, the mechanism underlying um, neurogenesis in Alzheimer's disease and understand whether indeed um, impairments in hippocampal neurogenesis in Alzheimer's disease um, are part of the mechanism of uh, memory failure. So in the next slide, um, you can see that um, I um, outlined here some milestones of research um, in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. And here, um, you know, we're getting back to the mouse models because, you know, our ability to um, look at molecular mechanisms in the human brain um, is, is more limited because we're looking at an endpoint. So in order to understand mechanisms, we're going to get back to our research in mouse models. And I'm going to show you how um, our research evolved during the years. The, one of the first observations that we've made was that hippocampal neurogenesis is impaired in mouse models of familial Alzheimer's disease. And if you go to the next slide, um, you will see that uh, when we look at brain sections of mice um, that express mutant forms of familial Alzheimer's disease, and on the slide, this is slide number 13, I indicated several mouse models that we've been looking into, we and others have been looking into, um, you'll see that the number of neurons is significantly reduced um, in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease compared to wild-type mice. And this takes place very early, very early on. For example, um, in some mouse models, it could take uh, place two to three, two to three months of age um, in mice that have a very extensive pathology and in mice that have um, slower pathology progression, this could take place around five, six months of age. So very, very early in, um, in the pathological progression of Alzheimer's disease, which really suggested to us that this could be uh, part of the molecular mechanism of memory deficits rather than a result of the pathology. So we kept looking into um, the mechanism and one of the most intriguing observations that we've had, I think, was that those proteins that cause familial Alzheimer's disease are actually regulating hippocampal neurogenesis. And I'm looking at slide 15 now. And uh, here um, I indicated some characteristics um, and some uh, observations that people have made during the years, including ourselves, about um, the role of presenilin-1 and amyloid precursor protein as regulators of hippocampal neurogenesis. So as some of you may know, presenilin-1 um, is thought to be the catalytic core of gamma secretase that cleaves several, uh, or numerous, I should say, substrates um, some of them play a role in neurogenesis, such as NOTCH1, RB4, APP, L1, etc. In addition to that, um, an observation that has been made long time ago, and um, I guess was, I wouldn't say went unnoticed, but I would say that uh, was probably partially overlooked, um, is that the ventricular zone uh, was substantially thinner um, in 
presenilin-1 knockout uh, embryonic, um, embryonic mice, and um, the number of neural progenitor cells was dramatically reduced. Later on, we have shown that even during adulthood, presenilin-1 regulates the differentiation of hippocampal neural progenitor cells. And likewise, and I don't have time today to talk about all those studies, but if those of you who would be interested, um, I indicated uh, our studies on the slides and you're welcome to look it up. But one of the examples that I decided to include today is that when we downregulated the level of presenilin-1 in neural progenitor cells, we observed that um, neural progenitor cells um, exit the cell cycle. You can see here um, on slide 16, you can see that uh, the number of uh, proliferating cells is reduced um, in um, brain sections where um, we injected lentiviral vectors expressing uh, presenilin-1 siRNA. And the number of new neurons or the number of newly mature neurons um, is upregulated, as you can see here. Um, neurons that are GFP positive, BRDU positive, and beta-3 tubulin, um, these are new neurons, and their number is increased. And the reason is because presenilin-1 is a regulator of neural progenitor cell differentiation. So what do we learn from that? We learn from it that, indeed, presenilin-1, which causes mutations in presenilin-1, cause um, um, familial Alzheimer's disease is in fact a regulator of hippocampal neurogenesis, which is um, quite remarkable. I don't think, um, you know, I don't think that um, we anticipated that um, 20 or 30 years ago. And indeed, um, to uh, elaborate on that point, uh, when we analyzed um, the morphology of, of new neurons, um, that had a reduced expression of presenilin-1, we observed that um, their um, dendritic spines and the number of dendritic branching uh, were all compromised. Um, and this, you can see that um, on slide 17. And their survival also on slide 18, you can see that the survival of new neurons and mature neurons um, that had reduced expression of presenilin-1, which is um, um, just to clarify, reduced expression of presenilin-1, we think that um, mimics um, the um, um, real um, function of presenilin-1 uh, mutant forms, because we already know that gamma-secretase um, activity is reduced uh, in um, the mutant forms of presenilin-1. And indeed, when presenilin-1 is reduced, um, we can see that there are less new neurons that are being, uh, that are, that survive in the um, granular cell layer of the dentate gyrus, um, and their, you know, survival is, is, um, survival is compromised, which means the dentate um, gyrus la layer is potentially thinner um, or less, um, um, less functional, which is, this is, I'm yet to show you this data. When we looked at the molecular uh, mechanism of um, a reduction of presenilin-1 expression in neural progenitor cells, 
you can see here, and I'm on slide 19, you can see that levels of uh, markers or proxies of um, stemness, such as nestin, and proxies of proliferation, such as cyclin, one, uh, cyclin D1, um, EGF receptor, uh, PDGF receptor are downregulated, while um, proxies of differentiation, such as neurofilament, are upregulated, suggesting that downregulating neuropresinolin uh, 1 in neural progenitor cells indeed um, enhances their differentiation, but also compromises their survival, their morphology, and their function. And when it comes to their function, you could see in, again, slide 19, you could see that levels of phosphocreb, for example, a major regulator of neural progenitor cell survival is downregulated. In addition, phosphobetacatinin, very critical for their um, function, is also downregulated in those new neurons. So then the question was, okay, um, if we know that hippocampal neurogenesis is impaired in familial Alzheimer's disease, and we all also um, um, partially know why, um, and um, shown that APP and presinolin regulate these processes, then the question is, if we deplete hippocampal neurogenesis, would that exacerbate learning and memory um, in Alzheimer's disease? And that was a pretty difficult task because um, Alzheimer's mice have um, impairments in, in, in uh, learning and memory quite early on. But um, indeed, we, um, and I'm on slide 21, um, and this is a task that is relatively easy. Um, it's a task that um, mice have to discriminate between two different contexts. And um, in the first context, they get a shock in the other context that is very different, um, they don't get a shock, but they need to remember that they got the shock um, somewhere else. So they need to be able to discriminate between the two different contexts. As you can see here on slide 21, wild-type mice are easily performing this task. They learn it from day one, and they're able to perform it through um, day three very successfully. When it comes to the Alzheimer's mice, you can see that Alzheimer's mice um, do not uh, perform well on the first day, but then they'll learn the task and perform it successfully on day two and day three. When it comes to mice, the familial Alzheimer's mice with reduced neurogenesis, you can see that they fail to perform the task on day one, two, and three. So they were not able to learn the task at all. That strongly suggested that neurogenesis plays a major role um, in memory deficits and Alzheimer's disease. So then we asked the question, well, if, if this is the case, if we rescue neurogenesis, are we able to rescue memory? So in order to do that, we um, let the mice experience environmental enrichment, which is a setting that um, where mice can run, and I can show you, actually, I can jump into um, slide 26, so you can see the, um, you can see the, the large cage with the toys and running wheels and a lot of stimulation for the, for the mice, and they're able to run on the running wheels and, and so forth. 
And indeed, we observed that those mice that performed, that um, experienced environmental enrichment um, exhibited greater level of neurogenesis. You can look in slide 23, you can see that um, mice that um, experienced environmental en enrichment had more new neurons, um, more new neurons that um, incorporated in the granular cell, cell layer of the dentate gyrus. And again, those of you who are interested um, in more details, um, the papers that we published are um, indicated on the slides. So the issue uh, with environmental enrichment is that this is a stimulation that um, affects numerous aspects of the hippocampus, uh, not only uh, hippocampal neurogenesis. And so the question was, if we are specifically augmenting neurogenesis, are we able to restore memory formation? And that was um, the, main, the main next thing for us. So on um, slide 25, you can see our hypothesis. Augmenting neurogenesis may ameliorate memory deficits and Alzheimer's disease, and new neurons play a role in memory circuit um, in Alzheimer's disease. So indeed, um, instead of environmental enrichment, we chose a genetic form of augmenting neurogenesis, and I'm on slide 27 right now. And here is our experimental model, and this is... Um, we used animals that were given to us uh, from uh, Dr. Rene Han from Columbia University. And um, on the left, on the upper left, you can see that what we have done was to breed into our familial Alzheimer's disease five fat mouse model. We've bred um, two mouse models, one that expresses um, the Cree recombinase under the nesting promoter, and the other one um, that had a, a floxed Bax um, gene. And what this combination does is that it, en it enables us uh, with the um, administration of tamoxifen to excise or to delete um, Bax, which is a major regulator of neurogenesis. Um, and when Bax, which is an apoptotic gene, is deleted, we're able to increase the level of neural progenitor cells that survive. And um, as a result, um, the result is that we get more new neurons that um, are being generated and incorporate in the granular cellular. So on the right side here, you can see the quantitative analysis. And indeed, uh, when we injected tamoxifen into um, those five fad um, mice, the Alzheimer's mice. We observed um, increased level of neural progenitor cells and new neurons that incorporated um, in the granular cell layer of the dentate gyrus. So the next step for us was to ask whether we're able to uh, rescue memory when we have increased neurogenesis, level of neurogenesis. So here on uh, slide 28, you can see that um, we tested those mice with augmented neurogenesis um, in two tasks that are hippocampus specific. One is novel object location here on the left, and I'm in sli on slide 28. And um, on the right, contextual fair conditioning. And um, 
not surprisingly, uh, the, um, the uh, familial Alzheimer's disease mice performed pretty poorly um, on both tasks. And you can see that compared to um, the wild type mice in blue, the Alzheimer's mice in red performed very poorly and failed the tests. And those mice with augmented neurogenesis, which are um, labeled as TNBF, uh, tamoxifen-induced nesting backs familial Alzheimer's disease, um, performed almost as good as the wild-type mice, suggesting that um, augmenting neurogenesis in familial Alzheimer's disease restores memory formation in hippocampus-dependent memory forms. Both the novel object location and the contextual fear conditioning have been rescued. So to understand um, the mechanism by which new neurons rescue uh, memory formation in Alzheimer's disease, we looked whether to see whether they are part of the memory circuitry. And we have done that um, by um, using a, a construct um, or a, an engram kit. Uh, now for that, I have to explain what an engram is. Um, the engram um, is a set of neurons um, that participate in the memory process. They get activated um, either during, uh, usually during memory acquisition. These are um, scarce number of, of neurons in a specific um, layer or in uh, several um, brain areas that get activated following memory acquisition and they participate in memory storage and in um, memory uh, formation and acquisition. So the in order to understand whether um, new neurons are part of the engram, part of the memory storing um, circuitry, we used a kit, a memory kit, that we um, obtained uh, from Dr. Chenigawa's lab. Um, and you can see it here on slide 29. Um, this is a, a kit that, um, it's a viral kit um, that is composed of a promoter, CFOS promoter. And CFOS is a, an immediate early gene that designates um, the activation um, of, of neurons. And it is based on the TET-OFF system which in other words, when there's uh, tetracycline is uh, present, um, the tetracycline prevents the, um, the transcription um, of um, any gene that is downstream of the tetracycline uh, transcription um, activator. When tetracycline is not present, um, the, um, the cells that express this, this viral vectors uh, will appear as green, as you can see here on the right. These are green neurons that um, got activated and expressed successfully um, whatever genes are um, expressed downstream of the um, tetracycline um, element, tetracycline respond responding element. Um, in our case, it's YFP, uh, which is um, the green fluorescent protein, as you can see here in the pictures on the right. So using this um, engram kit, uh, we asked whether new neurons are part of the engram uh, during memory formation. 
And indeed, what we observed is that um, the number of the total number of neurons that participated in engram uh, was. I'm sorry. Is there any question? Okay, we observed that the total number of neurons that participated in the engram, as you can see here, and I'm on uh, slide 30, um, is comparable between the three groups, which are the wild-type mice, the mice with Alzheimer's disease, and the mice with Alzheimer's disease and augmented neurogenesis. When we looked at uh, the number of new neurons that participated in the engram, we noticed that the number of new neurons in the engram is significantly and severely reduced um, in the Alzheimer's mice. And that when we augment neurogenesis, we upregulate the number of new neurons that are being recruited into the engram. Even when we look at the percentage of new neurons as part of the engram, we see that it's compromised in Alzheimer's disease. And following augmentation of neurogenesis, we rescue the number of new neurons that are being recruited into the engram. To understand whether those um, new neurons um, were also reactivated during memory retrieval, we um, looked on the next day um, of contextual fair conditioning and asked whether these new neurons would be reactivated following memory retrieval. And in order to do that, we looked at another immediate early gene that was activated in those um, new neurons called eager one. And indeed, as you can see here, and I'm on slide 31, um, the um, majority of um, new neurons was the number of new neurons um, that participate in memory acquisition and retrieval was significantly lower in Alzheimer's disease and was rescued in Alzheimer's disease with augmented neurogenesis. And here, these are these uh, three pi uh, representations of the engram show that in wild-type mice and in mice with augmented neurogenesis, the number of uh, the total size of the engram is comparable, and the number of new neurons that participate um, in the engram um, is is greater compared to familial Alzheimer's disease, where the number of new neurons that participate in the engram is severely impaired. To determine whether these new neurons that participated in the engram indeed um, have characteristics um, that um, can suggest um, that they participated in, in learning and memory processes, we looked at their dendritic spines, and indeed we observed here that those new neurons that participated in the engram following augmentation of neurogenesis had rescue synaptic density um, in familial Alzheimer's disease, suggesting that in familial Alzheimer's disease, the synaptic density of new neurons that participate in the engram and also of mature neurons on the right side, and I'm on slide 32, um, is significantly impaired. And when we augmented neurogenesis, the level of dendritic spines in uh, new neurons as well as in mature neurons was significantly improved um, in all aspects. However, you know, this is so far, I've, I've shown you um, 
a lot of you know correlation between the number of new neurons and um, the performance level in hippocampus dependent learning and memory um, as well as um, the number of new neurons that participated in the engram now the question is are these new neurons really required for formation of contextual fear conditioning in familial Alzheimer's disease. In order to prove to ourselves that indeed the augmentation of neurogenesis is what is really required for the rescue of memory, we used uh, DREAD. And for those of you who do not know what DREADs are, DREADs are designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. And these are, um, we used in this case we used retroviral vectors as you can see here and i'm on slide 33 you can see retroviral vectors expressing um, hm hm4 receptors when we treated them with the spe specific actuator with cno we were able to inactivate specifically the activity of new neurons during the memory task and once we did that, we noticed that the rescue of memory was reversed. In other words, mice failed to perform the task when new neurons were inactivated during memory acquisition, suggesting that indeed those new neurons that were augmented in familial Alzheimer's disease were required for successful formation of contextual fear conditioning. Very excited by these observations, I would like to tell you what that means. And here I have a scheme here, and this is um, on slide 34. This is a scheme of the dentate gyrus, and um, in green are neurons that get activated and get recruited into the engram following memory acquisition, while in blue are new neurons. In a normal animal, some of the um, some of the um, granular neurons in the layer are being activated and are becoming and becoming um, green, including some of the new neurons. However, in Alzheimer's disease, there are less new neurons in the layer, and therefore the engram um, is impaired and memory is affected and um, is. Um, uh, impaired as well. So what is the mechanism? Why uh, when we augment neurogenesis and increase the number of new neurons that participate in the engram, um, we are able to rescue uh, learning and memory. In order to do that, we performed uh, in situ sequencing of mature and immature engram neurons. And this is a very um, large story that I could have probably spent um, another hour telling you about, uh, but I'm just going to um, tell you about it very briefly. And those of you, again, who would be very interested are welcome to um, read our paper that, that was just published at the Journal of Ex Experimental Medicine. Um, a, a few weeks ago, um, and what we observed was extremely interesting. So the, the, the way we've done it is we examined whether augmentation of neurogenesis affects the profile um, of granule cells in the dentate gyrus. So in order to do that, uh, we examined the trans transcription signature of both immature and mature neurons that were recruited into the engram 
um, in the Dentagyrus of the three groups of mice that we had. And we looked at 159 genes of interest that were sequenced simultaneously with uh, single cell resolution um, during the um, in situ sequencing. And here is what we observed um, in, in very, very briefly, because uh, the time, time flies. And um, um, I think that um, this, again, could be a very long story. But just to keep a very long story short, what you could see here on the left, and I'm on slide 37, you can see that this is the profile of um, all uh, neurons that participated in the engram. And um, in the middle is the profile of mature neurons versus on the right is the profile of new neurons. And just try to just look at the colors and you will see that on the right um, is the um, familial Alzheimer's disease mice with augmented neurogenesis. In the middle is the, um, um, I'm sorry, in the, on the left is the uh, familial Alzheimer's disease. In the middle is Alzheimer's disease with augmented neurogenesis. And on the right is um, the profile of wild-type neurons. And you can see that there is a, a, a greater, much greater resemblance between familial Alzheimer's disease, augmented neurogenesis, and wild-type neurons. So in other words, both immature neurons and new neurons exhibited rescued profile uh, following augmentation of neurogenesis in familial Alzheimer's disease mouse models. And again, I'm going to um, keep this very, very short because I could have talked about it for um, at least uh, several more hours. But those of you who are interested in the details of, the, um, of this uh, in situ analysis are welcome to um, look in our papers. So since I'm running out of time, I would like to summarize the talk and um, summarize what I've, um, I've been telling you um, today, which is, first of all, hippocampal neurogenesis persists in the human hippocampus in aging and in Alzheimer's disease. Second, neural stem cells, progenitors, and immature neurons are detectable in the aging and Alzheimer's brain by protein proxies um, and their transcripts. The number of new neurons and neural progenitor cells is reduced in Alzheimer's disease compared to age-matched individuals with no cognitive impairments. The number of new neurons correlates with cognitive diagnosis, and having more new neurons increases the likelihood of normal cognitive diagnosis. We noticed that deficits in hippocampal neurogenesis plays a role in memory impairments in Alzheimer's disease that new neurons get recruited into the engram during memory formation. And indeed, defective hippocampal neurogenesis results in an impaired engram that is manifested by memory deficits. As soon as we enhance neurogenesis, um, we rescue, we're able to rescue the engram leading to uh, the restoration of memory in Alzheimer's disease. And this is just, um, um, to um, take the time to thank the um, wonderful students um, and lab members that and collaborators that participated. Um, the um, human uh, brains were examined by an MD-PhD uh, student, former student of mine, Matt Tobin, and by a graduate student uh, at my lab, Amit Desuki. Um, um, 
and they are, uh, and I'm on slide 39. The um, Ngram study was performed by Rachna Mishra, uh, a former postdoc, and by Tronga Fan, uh, Moskan Gupta, Pavan Kumar, um, and um, Zach Morrissey at my lab. And um, the collaborators, Renee Han for giving us the mice, uh, Tanagawa for giving us the Ngram uh, viral uh, cocktail, uh, David Bennett and his team for the uh, postmortem brains, um, and uh, Bill Hunter for um, the uh, analysis of uh, protein, uh, protein interaction with synaptic markers. Bob Vassar is the one who generated the five fad mice. And uh, Mark here on the right, uh, Mark Klein um, helped us with the analysis of the uh, bioinformatics and in situ um, sequencing. And thank you so much. And I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you so much, really, for this wonderful presentation and to give you, to give us um, such a great overview of the amazing research you've been doing over the years. It's, um, I agree, we could probably spend uh, many hours talking about the work you did and um, because it's also very interesting. Uh, so thank you for summarizing it in this way. And it's so impressive the work that you have done and all the techniques that you've been using. So um, yeah, thank you again. It's a great honor to having you here. And please everyone flash your microphones or uh, raise your hands and um, to ask questions. And um, yeah, or use the chat uh, if you would like to use the chat. And um, yeah, and then we'll go from there. And um, yeah, I I would just like to ask and comment. I really think that it was interesting also in your um, CV that you were very early on interested in the connection between the immune system and uh, the neural system. I think it's it was very early that you did this. Uh, I know a lot of people are interested in it now, but it was kind of early on and uh, that is already that was already so impressive to me um, to read that and uh, you really showed really well the the mechanism that you could even show the integration of the the new uh, neurons in the system in a functional way um, that is really impressive and do you think that since you showed this mechanism, how this works, do you think we can translate that also to maybe Parkinson, if we would use stem cells, you know, to transplant stem cells into the brain that by the research you've done, that we you could basically figure out how to functionally um, use the stem cells to maybe also, um, you know, help people with Parkinson and other disorders. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so um, I think for um, the, the 
research that we do um, concentrates on learning and memory. And um, I think that for um, forms of Parkinson's where there's dementia involved um, and there's loss of memory, I think that could definitely apply. Uh, when it comes to uh, other brain functions that are um, uh, motor function and so forth, then we're talking about um, a, a different sort of intervention. We're talking about um, whether we are able to direct um, stem cells into um, other brain areas and have them incorporate in a functional manner um, and perform the tasks that local neurons perform. And um, this is a little, a little different and probably, um, you know, we're probably hoping that one day that will happen. Um, but this will definitely require uh, further research. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, I hope you get all the funding too. <laughs> to figure out all of our problems <laughs> but uh, not all of it um, yeah it's, it's a really amazing and um, please flash your microphones Dr. Shah uh, and please go ahead and then um, Dennis, Kiko and Marcus thank you so much yeah thank you for sharing your wonderful work with us and a couple of questions came in my mind uh, so we know that about the insulin resistant because you just talked about the tamoxifen. In the same time, at the beginning, I was thinking about the, I mean, mechanism and uh, uh, kind of glucose metabolism because we are talking about the hy hippocampus. And I was just wondering during your research, did you, I mean, gather any information about the uh, any specific law? of the hippocampus and how it's work, working in a case of the uh, glu uh, glucose metabolism. This is one part I wanted to ask and later I will ask my question about the tamoxifen. So it's, in, it's interesting that you're asking because um, we have um, other studies that I've not shown here today that look into um, the molecular mechanism that underlies type 2 diabetes induced Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, we know that um, Alzheimer's, that um, type 2 diabetes um, is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and in that um, individuals who um, suffer from type 2 diabetes have a greater risk um, of, of um, deteriorating into dementia. And uh, with that knowledge, I mean, we are still, you know, yet to figure out um, the, the mechanism. And um, there is a whole line of investigations at my lab um, looking into this. Um, and um, I think that um, if, you, if you look at my current and hopefully um, near future papers, you'll uh, probably be able to um, get an idea of um, our findings in that regard and um, the um, impairments not only in the dentage iris but in in um, the brain uh, the whole brain um, impairments that um, potentiate the um, or escalate start the escalation from um, type 2 diabetes into um, 
cognitive deficits um, in Alzheimer's disease. Exactly, and when we are talking about the neurogenesis, because as you know that some of the patient, for example, in children, we have a certain cancer, and if it's appear in the brain, even during the chemotherapy later, they can experience the early sign of the Alzheimer. That's why it's very important from that perspective. Also, uh, I mean, I was just wondering, is there any specific uh, interleukin or uh, signaling pathway that you just recognize during your research, for example, specifically we are talking about TNF or IL-6 or any kind of a stat signaling or such a thing? Um, I think um, what you're asking is, is very important, um, but um, I think that it would require us to uh, look more specifically in a cell specific, uh, cell type specific manner in order to determine um, whether um, alterations in interleukins um, one or other uh, take place, uh, particularly because we know that um, microglial cells are uh, part of the niche, the neurogenic niche in the hippocampus, and there's um, a, a very good chance that indeed um, alterations in interleukin or other um, inflammatory um, um, signals are being altered in um, uh, Alzheimer's disease. And there's definitely uh, a good chance that um, these are molecular pathways that we haven't um, elucidated yet. And um, there's definitely uh, room for investigation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Dennis, uh, please go ahead. Thank you, Katarina. Thank you, Doctor. This was a really interesting presentation. I had a couple of questions. Uh, first one is, were you tracking um, the behavior in regards to sleep? Did you, was that something, was that a factor that you were examining in your study? We have, it's a very good question. Uh, unfortunately, we have not done that. Um, sleep is um, has been um, increasingly associated with Alzheimer's disease, um, and uh, I, I think that uh, this question is a, is a very good one. Uh, we haven't looked at the circadian cycle um, of the mice. I can say that um, as far as uh, our study is concerned, uh, the mice have been on a constant cycle of um, uh, light-dark cycle, um, but we have not looked into uh, behavioral um, sleep patterns um, in our study. Okay. Um, and were they, was it just a standard lab diet for, for these animals, or was there any sort of variability in that, Patrick? The diet was standard. Um, however, um, when we used um, the engram cocktail, uh, the viral engram cocktail, we, as I mentioned, we had to um, supplement the diet with um, doxycycline in order to um, modulate the expression of the um, engram cocktail, uh, the CFAS-induced um, EYFP um, expression. So... Um, this is this is one aspect, um, and then of course the tamoxifen um, injection, which is not part of the diet. It's uh, injected 
IP um, is also another another factor that we had to um, take into account. And then um, for it, this would obviously be difficult to measure in mice, perhaps. Um, but have you noticed any sort of light sensitivity or inability to to look at computer screens in in Alzheimer's patients? or in animal models rather? Yes, so, um, you know, it, it, the mice have been tested for uh, elevated levels of anxiety and we have not detected any abnormalities um, in that regard. Um, when it comes to screen, this is something that has to be done in humans and um, I cannot comment on this because we haven't done that, um, but, um, in mice, it's it's a little bit more challenging to test. I can imagine. And then the last question is, and this is more for, again, human studies, but I have um, seen claims that consumption of certain types of fungus, such as lion's mane, has um, the ability to promote neurogenesis. I'm not sure of which region specifically, but do you, do you have an opinion or any information on that? No, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't heard about that. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your answers. My pleasure. Um, yeah, Marcos or Kikor, did you did you have a question? I don't. This is a great presentation, though, man. Thank you. Thank you, um, Mark Marcos. Did you? Uh, yes. Hello. Um... Yeah, so I, I'm a radiologist, but I used to work in neurology and neurosurgery and psychiatry, but only for like shorter period of times. But, um, and I have a sister who has Alzheimer actually in Germany. Um, so what I wanted to mention is, um, and I'm sure Oli um, was very nice to present that, is that I'm sure you know that person Dale Bredesen is is that the is that the guy? It's a neurologist from UCLA who wrote that book, The End of Alzheimer, whatever that means. Have you heard of him? Just curious. Oli? No. no, I have not. You have not. Okay. You see, that's the reason I bring it up. Um, it's a it's a very fascinating story. You can I mean he's a serious researcher. He's actually more a researcher than a neurologist, quite frankly. But then he and he is um, married to an um, to a general um, physician like Dr. Shah, like an integrative uh, medicine um, wife, <laughs> and uh, he um, did a lot of work uh, trying to figure out. Uh, he does like a, a more hol holistic approach, but he has a lot of data, and some of his data um, to me is uh, was when I first heard it is quite shocking. Um, it which vibrates with your theme that he has published like 10, 20 people with a certain subset of reason to have Alzheimer, that the hippocampus actually, you know, came back, the volume, he, you know, he measured that on, on MRI scans, etc. So it's, a, it's fascinating work. Uh, there are a lot of YouTubes about him. And he also talks a lot about, which goes back to Dr. Shah's comment, the, I mean, he basically divides Alzheimer in different subgroups. The inflammatory, the you know toxic variant, the genetic variant, and um, and uh, glucose metabolism plays a big role. So um, 
interval fasting he promotes a lot and he talks about getting and i stop in a second <laughs> he, he talks about getting like being tested which i did because of my sister when i'm in the 50s and see what your predisposition is genetically you know metabolically etc and then trying to find means to prevent it or do something about it fascinating work i i wrote it in the chat so um i think it's worthwhile to look that up well i think generally speaking i think the idea of um testing especially um you know if if one has a a familial form in the family it's worth testing um and um even if even if it's not a familial form right even if there's a greater risk of cardiovascular disease in the family or um, some kind of cerebrovascular stroke um, in the family, it's worth testing diabetes. Um, and I, I would agree that there's a lot that we can do. Now, I wouldn't dare to say that we can prevent, totally prevent the disease. I would not dare to say that we can at this point cure it. But I would say that there are measures that could potentially um, uh, delay maybe the onset and maybe the severity of the disease. Um, and again, those measures are, you know, um, almost common sense, right? Uh, which is um, a, you know, a diet and exercise and um, um, keeping your brain um, um, occupied by um, challenging your brain, right? So there's the the term of, of use it or lose it, right? That is, we're all familiar with, um, you know, challenge your brain, learn new languages. Now, again, you know, this this is always a, a good, you know, a good methodology for great aging, right? Um, again, I wouldn't dare to say that um, this is something that could you know, um, could could solve the, the the problem, not even close to that, but may help in all aspects as we age and as we, um, you know, become more susceptible to different disorders, including memory loss. Um, so I would, you know, generally think that, you know, it never hurts to live a healthy lifestyle um, and that could prevent not only dementia, but a, a whole array of brain and, and, and uh, systemic disorders. Um, that said, I do believe that uh, we will have to have some sort of intervention in order to uh, fully prevent and cure pathology. Um, if I may really quick um, follow up, um that is uh, maybe a little bit related. We had here a few months ago, uh, Dr. Yi, uh, he was a professor of Emory University. Now he's back in his hometown in uh, China, he, who published the paper in Nature that FSH uh, blockade improved cognition in mice with Alzheimer's disease. Did you see a difference in male versus female? Um, um, in, you know, stem cell levels, um, maybe so, after an age. Yeah. Well, so um, the, the gender 
difference in Alzheimer's disease is is well known. Um, uh, females are um, at greater risk. Their um, their the severity of their disease is usually greater, um, and the onset is earlier. Um, generally speaking. Um, when it comes to neurogenesis, we have not seen a gender difference. That's not to say that there isn't. It just means that we have not detected one yet. Uh, but again, you know, there are so many aspects to study that I would not dare to say that it doesn't exist. I would just say that we haven't um, detected one yet. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was just regarding the precautions because we were discussing if um, women should just, you know, take hormones to prevent the SF FSH um, contribution to Alzheimer's and so on. So, um, yeah, that that's why I remembered that research. So, yeah, thank you. And Elizabeth, did you want to ask a question related to Glia? It's in the chat because I am thrilled to meet somebody who has a brilliant intuition in the subject. And so I am asking for your intuition. Oh, so the question is, um, what is the mechanism of action for slow auditory processing in dementia? Would that be gliosis? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be possible that that would be related to hippocampal function. Um, that's a good question that I don't have a good answer for, unfortunately. Uh, it is, um, I think it's, it's increasingly recognized that there is a, a deterioration of auditory function in Alzheimer's disease. Um, what is the mechanism of, of this phenomenon is, is not known and I, I don't know. Um, so I, I cannot comment on this. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, could it be possible that it's the relationship between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex that causes the deterioration of the of, of the auditory processing? Absolutely. The relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I cannot rule it out. It's it's definitely a possibility. Uh, we see a lot of pathology in the prefrontal cortex, and um, you, you may you may be right. And I, I think it's it's definitely worth pursuing. Thank you. And these, you, I'm, did you really say that the female, you had mostly female mice in, in your study, right? Correct. And did you find that there was, that, that the female mice had worse or earlier degeneration? They do. The, the mouse models of familial Alzheimer's disease clearly show an earlier um, and more severe phenotype for, for females um, and their, their pathology progresses faster. Does that depend upon whether they're housed with males or housed? Does that met, does it depend on the housing? I mean, their interpersonal relationships. Uh, it does. Mice relationships. So I would say that um, it's independent of the housing, though. Um, in our case, we keep them separate from the males because um, the you know when when males and females are kept together in the same cages, this is considered a breeder cage, um, which changes the whole dynamics um, and um, inter, you know interferes with um, the the whole. I mean, if if the female gets pregnant and and there's pops, it changes the whole dynamics in the cage and 
um, introduces additional factors that um, would be very difficult for us to control. Um, and therefore, we always keep females and males when it comes to experimental groups separately. Um, I don't know what the outcome of the pathology would be had you know a specific female you know had some pups and um, had to nurse the pups and so forth. I have no idea. Um, but I could say that if you compare the same age group, the same uh, pheno the same uh, genotype um, in mice in uh, female mice versus male mice, the pathology and the onset would be. Um, the onset would be earlier and the pathology would be greater in the females. I had a follow-up question from the audience. How did you um, measure anxiety exactly? There are several tests that we're performing. One is the light-dark uh, test. Um, there's the elevated maze um, there are several tests that we perform on a regular basis to assess uh, anxiety. I see. Is Are there any um, blood markers or anything like that also? I'm sorry, what kind of markers? Any sir, Anything in blood work or... Oh, uh, I'm sure there are. Uh, we have not done that. Got it. Thank you. Um, I... Sorry, can I ask one more question? Um, I had the question, I mean, this guy, for me, it's kind of fascinating to hear his approach, but I don't want to focus it too much on one person. His philosophy is based on his clinical research that his perspective is that the plaques in the brain are more a function of healing than a, fun than a product which would it be a key to treatment? And um, so his, he feels like, um, I, I think in the treatment domain, there are different drugs being tested. Some just enhance cognitive uh, function and some I think trying to go after the plaque. Um, and um, I wonder if, if, uh, if you can follow his, little unique, maybe a little bit at the rim of the medical spectrum perspective that it might be smarter not to go after the plaque, but to accept it as a sequelae of, of something going wrong and go after the going wrong first. Yes, you're right. Um, so the perspective of the field has been changing um, in that regard. Um, back in the days, we used to think that uh, amyloid plaques are um, are the to go after thing. Um, obviously, amyloid plaques are um, abnormal accumulations of um, whatever um, it is um, that you know sticky proteins that accumulate in those areas, and obviously they you know they occupy space if nothing else, right? Um, but they're, they're, they're not supposed to be there and they're not part of the healthy brain, right? So we would agree that um, these are probably lesions, right? Whether these lesions are actually um, helping get rid of 
toxic um, peptides or, um, or other substances, that may be. Um, and the field has been moving towards hypothesizing that indeed these are the soluble parts um, that eventually um, get aggregated in, in the form of amyloid plaques. And therefore, it is not so much the amyloid plaques that we need to go after, but more of the soluble toxic peptides that may uh, be the precursor of those plaques. And I think that's what you're referring to. Um, this is, I mean, this is definitely a possibility and um, it is definitely, you know, something to, um, to look into. And in you know, there are many, many labs that are looking into this possibility um, and, and, you know, to go after the, the earlier precursors that have a, a putative toxic um, um, influence on, on different cell types. So this is definitely a possibility that I cannot exclude and it's definitely valid. And um, I, um, I think that it, it makes sense. Um, and um, I think that, um, you know, again, like I said at the beginning, you know, we have to re-examine everything as if, you know, as if we're absolutely wrong <laughs> about everything, right? So I think it's good that uh, people question uh, what, you know, hundred and something years ago seemed to be like the ultimate um, hallmark and um, it's actually not necessarily going to be the um, the answer um, therapy wise. Is it possible that the, the those changes, those tangles, and uh, are all healing from gliosis? And and would you call gliosis a separate disease from the other from hippocampal damage, so that we could separate dementia and Alzheimer's and and call them what they really are? The, the underlying processes. I think there's um, a lot of evidence that uh, neuro neuroimmune uh, processes take, you know, major, um, you know, have a major role in in the pathology. Um, it is very difficult to um, think of Alzheimer's disease without uh, considering. Um, the role of the immune system and um, inflammatory processes. So I would say that um, it is very important to keep studying and understanding the role of immune cells and, and inflammatory um, substances in the pathology of Alzheimer's disease um, to, I think it's a, again, you know, as we have been discussing uh, during the last uh, hour and a half, this is a, a multifactorial disorder. Um, it's, um, there are a lot of, a lot of things going on in, in simple words. Um, so I think it is, the more we know about it, um, the more we, we learn, the more we understand these processes, um, the, the closer we would get to um, a, an effective cure. And again, it might be not you know, one cure fits all, right? It, it could be that uh, people who have diabetes will have to have a certain intervention and people who have, I don't know, um, a mutation, um, familial mutation will have a different intervention. 
Um, so it is possible that the molecular pathways uh, along the way may be slightly different um, with a, a, the same end result, the same um, cognitive phenotype um, at the end. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, I, at this point, I would not exclude any of the above. I would um, definitely continue promoting research in all aspects and in all fronts um, in order to um, enhance the uh, possibility of, of leading to, to um, cure. So the genetic would be called familial, the glial, gliosis component would be called glial Alzheimer's disease. I'm just saying the, the, um, if... The familial form is the genetic form. So these are mutations um, autosomal dominant mutations in APP personalins. Um, the late onset, the sporadic form, um, is um, of an unknown cause, but there are a lot of risk factors. The gliosis is a, a part of the mechanism of, of the disease, generally speaking, whether it's a familial form or a sporadic form. Yeah, thank you. Uh, those questions. Um, I had uh, one more comment or question uh, about the, that you, in the end, presented that you could um, even see with in situ sequencing that uh, the augmentation um, that you did to neurogenesis that the profile was um, the profile of the engram cells was um, basically rescued. Also, um, is that something you will pursue to find maybe more um, uh, mechanisms that you can address or are you looking into RNA sequencing? Like what's the future or your ongoing research? Thank you. Yeah, the hope is to understand the, profi the transcript profile of um, of those new neurons and um, try to come up with ways to correct, if you may, the transcript profile of um, the Alzheimer's new neurons. And um, this is this is definitely one of the um, approaches that we're we're taking uh, moving forward. Um, if I it's there actually less likelihood or more likelihood in people with Alzheimer's to have epilepsy. I, I can't remember anymore. And because I know there is a form of epilepsy that um, if the um, stem cells don't incorporate well into the network, that um, that's kind of a severe form of epilepsy where then the neurons don't really integrate and just do you know, random patterns and elicit epilepsy uh, episodes. Um, is, is in people, does in people with Alzheimer's occur less epilepsy in their health history? So um, epilepsy um, is, is an, an interesting aspect that occurs in a subset of the population um, of Alzheimer's uh, patients. Um, the, the full mechanism of, Alzheimer's, of um, epilepsy in Alzheimer's disease it's, is not, not completely understood. Um, there are more and more studies looking into this, um, and it is 
definitely possible that, um, and, and there are actually several very intriguing studies lately, uh, published lately, that suggest a connection between hippocampal neurogenesis and um, epilepsy um, in Alzheimer's disease. And it, I think it's worth um, looking into very seriously. And I think that there's definitely a possibility that um, also, um, I believe it was Elizabeth who asked me about gliosis. So it's definitely possibility, there's a possibility that gliosis is involved in this process. Uh, but it's a very interesting phenomenon that we do not fully understood, uh, understand yet. Um, sorry, I, I had one more question. Maybe I missed that in your presentation. Um, the role of stem cell therapy um, at this point, I think it's probably experimental and um, I'm not aware of any, maybe there are some trials somewhere, but um, where's that status quo of that and where that might go? So um, when you refer to stem cell therapy, are you referring to um, an intervention that modifies uh, stem cells in the brain or are you referring to stem cell transplantation the latter okay um well um it is definitely possibility that there, there's definitely a possibility that some uh, groups pursue that um i personally um my group is um relying on the fact that um neurogenesis occurs um, naturally in the hippocampus, and therefore um, uh, it would be it would make um, make it easier for researchers to find ways to modulate endogenous neurogenesis rather than transplant um, exogenous cells into the brain. If it makes sense to you, it's something that you know, if you think about it, um, especially as a neurosurgeon, you know that um, any any um, intervention is is partially an injury as well. So if we had to prefer whether we would like to um, modulate existing neural stem cells in the brain rather than injecting, um, you know, stereotactically injecting or um, peripherally injecting um, neural stem cells into the brain, uh, we would prefer to modulate the endogenous and, ones. And what's the status quo of that former version to stimulate the brain cells yet already existing? Are there any studies or any controlled trials? So there aren't, there aren't clinical trials available yet, but this is where we're heading. This is where my group is heading. That's what we're hoping to achieve. Yeah, I think that was a great last question to say that you're heading that way. And um, we've been going over in 90 minutes, so I wanted to give you, um, pro you know, a break from us. <laughs> you, um, thank you so much for sharing your uh, really amazing research with us. And I hope, um, you know, um, all the best for your research and future clinical trials. Uh, for me, when I think it looks really promising and I'm very helpful, hopeful. So I really appreciate and I think um, the feedback of these rooms and these talks are that 
people feel more hopeful about the future because of people like you and the work you do. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it and come back sometime. And uh, yeah, thank you, Oli. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you everyone for coming and asking questions and commenting. We really appreciate it. It makes the discussion really uh, interesting. And I hope I hear you all back soon. We'll have um, more rooms um, in the future. Uh, we'll have tomorrow, uh, Dr. Sally is talking about how you use a small model, um, how you use biophysics and machine learning to design organisms um, and uh, then we'll have Dr. Venkat Arami um, talking about glioblastoma and how it manages to invade the brain and on Friday we'll have Dr. Goodyear talking about um, how he developed a technique to visualize heartbeats in vivo with an antibody dye. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Orly, um, to that you shared your precious time with us. And we wish you all the best. And uh, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye.